Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is Joel Griffith. I am a research fellow in the Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies here. And today's event is part of our series, Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice. I want to let everyone know you can also watch this event or any of our previous events at heritage.org slash free markets or the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. Uh, after our speaker's presentation, we will have time for audience questions as well. Our speaker today is Dr. Samuel Gregg. His topic is Tocqueville, Novak, and the Challenge of Socialism. Dr. Gregg is Research Director at the Acton Institute, where he has written and spoken extensively on questions of political economy, ethics and finance, and natural law theory. Today, he is going to address the nature of America and the character of socialism. Dr. Gregg is the author of nine books, has edited many more, and authored a number of scholarly and popular articles. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Samuel Gray. Well, uh, thank you very much for that kind welcome. It's good to be back at the Heritage Foundation. It's good to be here with many familiar faces, it turns out, many old friends. It's also good to see some new faces and potentially new friends as well. So my topic, as has been mentioned, is Tocqueville, Novak, and the Challenge of Socialism. <clears throat> so as the title suggests, I'd like to take some time this morning to reflect upon the return of socialism or socialist sentiment in the United States today, to think about what these two particular thinkers thought about the subject of socialism, and then to consider their relevance, the relevance of their thought for our present dilemmas. So maybe the best place to start is to acknowledge that 30 years after Eastern European regimes committed to explicitly socialist economic programs and ideas collapsed, many Americans now apparently regard socialism as a worthy political objective. So in mid-2018, for example, a Gallup poll indicated that 57% of self-identified Democrats viewed socialism favorably. Americans aged 18 to 29 were marginally more positive about socialism, 51%, than capitalism, 45%. Now, overall, in this poll, capitalism received a positive rating of 56% from Americans. Now, that's its lowest rating since 2010, which was just after, of course, the Great Recession. 
So at a time of economic prosperity in America today, why has support for socialism suddenly surged? Well, I think this trend owes something to the success of socialism's promoters in achieving a type of moral ascendancy over advocates of free economies in the marketplace of ideas. So, why the renewed interest in socialism? Well, the reasons, I think, for this return to socialism aren't too hard to identify. In the first place, many people today have no memory of the former Soviet bloc's command economies, which, of course, comprehensively failed to deliver on their agenda. Now, there's always a steep price to pay for historical amnesia. People do, however, remember the 2008 Great Recession. And I don't think you can underestimate just how much damage the Great Recession did for the case for markets. Now, there's plenty of evidence that suggests that mistaken central bank policies and government regulation played major roles in facilitating bubbles and subsequent crises in the financial and housing sectors. But I think relentless rhetoric about allegedly unregulated markets in America has triumphed over the facts. Nor, I think, does it help that many free marketers seem unable to speak beyond the world of numbers and utility when they're defending history's greatest poverty-alleviating system. Too many, I think, seem oblivious to the fact that part of socialism's appeal has always been its promise of a more just world. In fact, I've seen more than one conservative nod approvingly while listening to socialists insist that we should settle for a little less GDP growth if it secures greater justice in society. Well, I think such mindsets reflect just how much we take economic growth for granted. We've forgotten that economic growth is the exception in human history rather than the rule. I also think that to speak of casually accepting slippages in GDP growth also trivializes the negative implications that has for the poor. Now, that said, all that said, the more that free marketers relentlessly focus on the greater utility and material prosperity that markets undoubtedly generate, the deafer they seem to claims of justice. So, I think the need for more principled defenses of free markets is especially important given what socialism means to many Americans today. And it turns out, I think, that socialism in many cases, in many Americans' cases, turns out to be much more about particular value commitments than particular economic policies. So, for example, a 2018 Gallup survey indicated that, quote, Just 17% of Americans define socialism as government ownership of the means of production. Now, that's half the number who gave socialism that definition in 1949, which is when Gallup first started Americans asking Americans about the meaning of this term. 
But most revealingly, the same survey indicated that socialism's meaning had less to do with specific systems than with certain conceptions of justice and equality. So for 23% of Americans, socialism was about, quote, equality, equal standing for everybody, all equal in rights, equal in distribution, end quote. Now, that's more than double the number of people who gave that same answer back in 1949. So socialism from this standpoint is concerned with equality in the sense of sameness, equal starting points, equal outcomes, equal entitlements. Now, I think that suggests that those Americans who are willing to give socialism a hearing today are much more informed by the vision of a leveling equality that you find in John Rawls's theory of justice and much less interested in the economic analysis that you find in Karl Marx's Das Kapital. So what does this matter? Well, it matters because it has implications for the way that socialism is talked about and the way that we critique socialism. Tough-minded and unsentimental criticism of the economic dysfunctionalities that socialism engenders, whether it's the command economies of the former Soviet bloc, the Latin American version that has destroyed Venezuela, or the social democratic models that are favored by many Western Europeans, we need strong economic critiques of those systems. It's also important to point out the contradictions between what people say they value and the type of economic policies they favor. Facts do, after all, matter. But the nature, I think, of some Americans' enthusiasm for socialism suggests that they're less concerned with specific systems and much more concerned with what they think is important in life. And if that's true, then critiques of socialism have to involve analysis of what values are upheld by socialism and the implications of the pursuit of those values for political and economic order. And few people, I'd suggest, understood this better than Alexis de Tocqueville and Michael Novak. So let's begin with Alexis de Tocqueville. To most Americans and most Europeans, Tocqueville is primarily known as a political theorist or a social scientist of democracy. Less attention has been paid to Tocqueville's economic views. Now, if I was to summarize Alexis de Tocqueville's economic views, it would be to say that they were somewhat eclectic. So, for example, Tocqueville accepted the economic case for free trade. The truth of its principles, he wrote in an 1843 letter to the Whig peer, Lord Radnor, he said, is uncontestable. But Tocqueville was also an active politician for much of his life. And in his view, economic policy could not be separated from politics in the real world. And that included European great power politics. Tocqueville was very uncertain that France would fare well if free trade prevailed between France and its traditional rival, Britain. Like most 19th century continental liberals, Tocqueville was very much a nationalist. And in his case, that meant the strength and the prestige 
of France. So economic considerations were, to his mind, subordinate to that principle. But the caution that Tocqueville exercised towards economic liberalization contrasts sharply with what I think was his willingness to wage intellectual war on socialism. And nowhere did he express this more clearly than in a speech he gave to France's Constituent Assembly on September the 12th, 1848. And I think this speech is worth reading and rereading again because its critique of socialism is especially pertinent for our times. Now, you need to know that the context of Tocqueville's speech was an effort by some members of the Assembly to enshrine what amounted to a right to employment, a right to a job in the constitution of France's Second Republic. Now, Tocqueville's opposition to this proposal was shared by the two economists who were sitting in the assembly, one of whom was Friedrich Bastiat, and the other, less well-known, was Louis Wolofsky. But unlike the economists, Tocqueville's critique of a constitutional right to a job was primarily political. Indeed, Tocqueville said that his main reason for speaking against this proposal was to force his country to debate politically, quote-unquote, the question of socialism. Now, Tocqueville argued that if everyone was constitutionally guaranteed employment by the state, he said it would legitimate the state's takeover of the economy. Now, this is an essentially political insight, but it was the launching point of Tocqueville's distinctly non-economic, non-economic critique of socialism. So in the first place, Tocqueville insisted that socialism was based on, quote, an energetic, continuous appeal to man's material passions, end quote. Socialists, he said, endlessly emphasize the material dimension of human life. For them, he said, it's ultimately what matters. But for Tocqueville, people were more than just mouths. So to the extent that socialism was grounding its appeal on materialism, he said it couldn't help but degrade human beings. Second, Tocqueville underscored socialism's suspicion of private property. This is why socialists, he said, if they do not destroy it, transform it, diminish it, constrain it, limit it, and make of it something else than the private property that we know and that we have known since the beginning of the world. End quote. Private property, Tocqueville believed, not only taught people responsibility, it also provided them with security kept them out of poverty, and bolstered their freedom to act. And this brings us to Tocqueville's last point. Socialists of, quote, every colour, of every school, Tocqueville stated, share, quote, a deep distrust of liberty, of human reason, a profound scorn for the individual in his own right, for the human condition, end quote. By contrast, 
Socialists had every confidence in the state's alleged capacity to make everything right. Socialism means, Tocqueville insisted, that, quote, the state must not only direct society, but must be the master of every man, his tutor, his teacher, that from fear of letting him fall, the state must always be by his side, above him, around him, in order to guide him, protect him, sustain him, restrain him. In brief, socialism is the elimination of human freedom to a lesser or greater extent. End quote. So those are strong words. Socialism for Tocqueville portends, quote, a new form of servitude in the name of protecting everyone against life's ups and downs. Now, paradoxically enough, Tocqueville argued, this made socialism rather similar to the Ancien Regime that the French Revolution had overthrown. The Ancien Regime had also held that, to quote Tocqueville, wisdom resides in the state alone that its subjects are weak beings whom one must always lead by the hand for fear that they might fall or hurt themselves, that it is good continually to constrict, to oppose, to constrain individual liberties, that it is necessary to regulate industry, to guarantee the quality of goods, to prevent free competition. End quote. Now, these words shouldn't be taken to mean that Tocqueville opposed all forms of state regulation. His own economic writings indicate a willingness to entertain such proposals on their merits. But Tocqueville's wider point was this. Socialism's materialism, its disdain for, human, for private property, and its quasi-religious faith in the state amounted to an anti-civilizational project. People were not created, Tocqueville told his fellow legislators in his 1848 speech, for, quote, to be living in a society of bees or beavers, end quote. He said, we are made to be, quote, free and civilized people. Socialism takes us in precisely the opposite direction. Regardless of whether it's the hard socialism that enslaved millions of Eastern Europeans, or the soft despotism to which I think most of Western Europe and parts of America have already succumbed. They are, to use Tocqueville's words, quote, societies without air and where light hardly penetrates, end quote. In other words, they are the opposite of what human beings are meant to be. There is, however, a flip side to this. If supporters of free markets are also to avoid the charge of materialism that Tocqueville leveled at the socialists of his time, they must develop moral cases for the market that go beyond appeals to greater prosperity and negative liberty. Now, these goods aren't to be downplayed, but at a time in which socialists are aggressively asserting their moral preeminence, it's essential that the normative case for capitalism's superiority to socialism be based on far more than the generally consequentialist and materialist views that I, for one, commonly encounter 
in free market circles. Instead, market advocates should be employing the deeper, more free-ranging arguments developed by the likes of Wilhelm Robke, Jacques Weff, Adam Smith, and another thinker to whom I'm going to shortly turn. And I say this because these thinkers understood, shaped, and pressed the strictly economic arguments for markets and against socialism. But they also integrated these ideas into a vision of human beings as free, individual, social, creative, and fallible beings that were capable of greatness, but also depravity. Just as Tocqueville recognized how socialism corrupts human culture, they saw the necessity of grounding the case for market economies in a wider civilizational endeavor as something good created by humans that can help realize human flourishing rather than creating a society of hedonists. Now, replicating their efforts today, I think, is the real challenge for supporters of free markets, not least because it will help to expose the truth about socialism, that socialism is an ideological and economic system that not only induces poverty and destroys freedom, but also, as Tocqueville understood, is based upon lies about who we are as human beings. Now, the thinker to who I just alluded, but whose name I did not mention, was, of course, the American theologian, the late Michael Novak. There are people here in this room who knew him very well. In my last conversation with Michael Novak, shortly before his death in 2017, he expressed his regret that socialism was undergoing a type of revival in America. I remember his words very well. Well, Michael said very wearily, I guess you're going to have to re-explain yet again all the problems with socialism. Apparently, someone has to do it. Pause. Every pause, single pause generation. Now, those of you who knew Michael Novak know that he was one of life's natural optimists. Yet he also knew that once people became interested or attracted to whatever's being called socialism at a particular point in time, then changing their views would become very, very difficult. We've all had that experience. In the 1960s, the mid-1960s, Novak saw most of his academic contemporaries embracing economic positions far, far, far to the left of what their parents had endorsed when they were voting for Roosevelt in the 1930s. Novak himself had wandered down that path. He once confessed that as a young man, he had been, quote, moved by the socialism of Charles Puguy, the French Catholic poet, who saw in socialism not so much a doctrine, but a way of life. Now, the fact, I think, that Novak was once one of them is one reason I'd suggest to those 51% of Americans aged between 18 and 29 who, 
apparently favor socialism, this is reason why they should read Michael Novak's 1982 classic, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism. That's especially true if they are a person of Jewish or Christian faith. Yes, some of the book is dated, but its insights into socialism and capitalism, I would argue, are as powerful today as they were 37 years ago. I think that part two of that book, which is entitled The Twilight of Socialism, is very instructive. Now, here Novak detailed all the economic problems that characterize socialism, whether it's of the command economy variety or contemporary social democratic systems. Novak never said that economics should be decisive in determining political choices, but he did think did think that basic insights into reality provided by economics, such as the workings of incentives and self-interest, comparative advantage, trade-offs, the necessity of free prices as carriers of information, attentiveness to the known side effects of particular choices, etc. He said these should be no more ignored than any other empirical observation which arose from the social sciences. But the lessons of economics weren't the primary departure point for Novak's critique of socialism. He genuinely wanted to understand why people embraced socialism, and he concluded that it wasn't simply a question of economic ignorance. By the early 1980s, Novak argued, Socialism had become much less about practical economic programs than it was about, first of all, certain ideals about equality and poverty, and second, deep hostility to capitalism per se. And he said that the single-minded pursuit of these beliefs combined with a tendency to view capitalism in almost demonic terms meant that socialism had acquired what Novak called the characteristics of, quote-unquote, a political religion. This, he believed, is not only made socialism even more erroneous, it also made socialism even more dangerous. Now, being a political faith, socialism could never fulfill the expectations associated with true religion. But its pseudo-religious nature meant that socialism's economic and political failures would inevitably generate a very particular type of anger and fury. Now, socialism's record of failure, Novak pointed out, was very clear. Instead of growing wealth across society, it gradually impoverished everyone. Far from producing greater equality, Socialism facilitated its own inequalities, the most glaring inequality being between the planners of socialist economies and everyone else. Now, faced with these types of disappointments, socialism as a faith needs scapegoats to affirm its own righteousness and that of its practitioners. Now, traditionally... Such culprits have ranged from businessmen to foreigners to Americans to America 
and the Jews. The anti-Semitic rantings that you hear from Maduro regime officials in Venezuela are no more incidental to 21st century socialism than the anti-Zionist campaigns pursued by failing Eastern European communist states in the late 1960s. Now, these insights, I'd suggest, highlight a point underscored by Novak that might encourage today's socialists to reconsider their animus against capitalism. Throughout the spirit of democratic capitalism, Novak was relentless in stressing that any serious theory of political economy must pay attention to the human condition. Humans are good, yet capable of evil. Our reason is powerful, but it's not all powerful. Men are not angels, but neither are they beasts. The genius of market economies, Novak said, is that they recognize humanity's capacities and our limitations and help direct these things to the realization of some very important goods. Now, this argument first achieved mature form during the Scottish Enlightenment. Novak, however, had a way of explaining to late 20th century audiences this idea and investing it with distinctly American experiences. Commercial republics like America, Novak said, had shown that allowing people to pursue their own rational self-interest within a particular legal and political context indirectly helped to realize important material and political conditions of the common good. What's more, they also showed that you didn't need a top-down planner with pretensions to godlike omnipotence, the man of system, to which Adam Smith often referred, to engineer these types of outcomes. But while Novak's political economy was partly derived from a hard-headed assessment of human nature, he was as into ideals as any dedicated socialist. His vision was one of a market economy enmeshed in a political system that took equity and freedom seriously, all of which was grounded apart on the particular moral culture derived from the best of Jewish and Christian thought and practice. Novak was always a culture-first man, long before anyone was floating Benedict options. As much as he admired the great explanatory power of free market economics, particularly Hayek's version, Novak understood that the preservation of freedom and justice depends less on economics than it does upon the vision of the human person that's at the heart of any culture. Now here, Novak's ideas about morality and markets, very close to those of the German free market economist, devout Christian, and intellectual architect of West Germany's market-driven economic miracle, Wilhelm Robke. Both Robke and Novak understood the civilizational imperative of grounding markets in a particular culture that shaped people's choices towards non-hedonistic ends. This is why Novak would have pushed back against the tendency of some contemporary conservative critics of capitalism to lazily associate free markets with ethical hedonism. 
Now, Nodex certainly recognise that some free market advocates do think that way. Novak, however, held that you can have a dynamic market and a culture in which people could pursue a plurality of different but compatible goods rooted in the truth about the human person. Now, to be sure, Novak acknowledged, there were always going to be tensions. That, however, is the price you pay for giving people the space to, prefer, to pursue the higher freedom to which reason and Jewish and Christian faith point as the telos of human liberty. Now, of course, there are many contemporary economic, cultural, and political issues which Novak did not address. The cronyism of infecting places like New York, Chicago, and of course this city, Washington, D.C., is not given much attention in his writings. Nor did Novak anticipate the extent to which corporate America would embrace a type of infantile leftism in order to prove how woke it is. I've no doubt, however, that Novak would have had ready responses to these problems. He would have pointed out, for example, that the temptation for business to wander down the crony path grows whenever the state starts assuming a large role in the economy. This wasn't just because Novak knew his Adam Smith and the Scots' attention to the phenomena of privilege-seeking businesses and privilege-dispensing legislators enriching each other at everyone else's expense. Novak also took the biblical idea of sin very seriously. And this led, I think, Novak to a deep realism about human beings and power. Now, Novak lived in Washington for a very long time. Politics was important to Michael Novak. It mattered, he believed, who held political power. Nor was he a knee-jerk anti-government type. But politicians, Novak knew, were just as affected by sin as anyone else. And sins like pride often encouraged hubris about what governments could do. And the results were often disastrous. Now, this didn't mean that Novak thought that liberty and markets would eventually take care of everything. He didn't. Many of the social dysfunctionalities that worry socialism's advocates and critics of capitalism don't have market solutions because, Novak understood, their causes often have very little to do with economics. Nor, however, did he think that politics always provided answers. Novak never tired of observing that two of his heroes, the aforementioned Alexis de Tocqueville and another Frenchman, Jacques Maritain, had highlighted America's long history of civil society first solutions to social challenges. This, Novak believed, had enabled much of America to avoid some of the mistakes associated with the government-first policies pursued by the European left and the European right. 
Novak's, uh, America's approach might be messier. Yet Novak was convinced it was more effective than the top-down approaches that inevitably fascinate intellectuals. Now, herein, I'd argue, lies Novak's ultimate importance for America's contemporary economic debates. Capitalism is not the kingdom of heaven. Then again, Novak never claimed it was. He reminds us, however, that some humility would help us to see the underlying errors of socialism, an economic system that has produced mass death or, in its milder forms, the slow bureaucratization of life that's evident in much of Western Europe and which Alexis de Tocqueville predicted over 180 years ago. As Novak often said, hell is what happens when you pursue heaven on earth. That's a truth, I think, which today's socialists and critics of capitalism should, assuming they're interested in doing more than just signal their virtue, should really, I think, take to heart. Thank you very much. So I believe we have time for some questions. Yes. Um, so, thank you. Um, in a speech that FDR gave uh, during the, uh, I think, 1932 campaign, um, he said that necessitous, necessitous men are not free. Um, and I'm wondering, how do you think somebody like Tocqueville would respond to that claim? Because it seems that FDR is saying you need to have a certain level of uh, 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 of economic support in order to act freely. Um, and, and that's sort of the logic behind a lot of welfare statism on both the right and the left that we're seeing today. Yes. Well, I think that uh, Alexis de Tocqueville would say a number of things. And then I'll say something about what Michael Novak would say. Very similar. Alexis de Tocqueville, if when you read Democracy in America and you read some of his reflections upon um, economics, what you quickly discover is that, yes, of course, he acknowledges that unless you have a certain degree of wealth, unless everyone has a certain degree of wealth, a certain degree of property, things that they own, that, that, they, that they control, that they have exclusive use over, and there's all sorts of things that are not going to happen in their life. That's not the argument. The argument is how do you provide that? How do you do that? And Tocqueville was saying to the socialists of his time who were ranging from people like a very young Karl Marx uh, to other French radicals who were proposing things like let's have a guaranteed right to a job in the Constitution, he was saying these proposals will come, first of all, one, at an incredible cost to freedom, and secondly, they don't work. Even then, when he was talking about things like um, trade questions or when he was talking about the role that he thought the state should play in the economy, 
He very much saw it, as did most non-socialists of the time, as the state playing a type of night watchman role. But really it was the responsibility of what he would refer to as free associations, the type that he'd seen and admired in the United States for taking care of so many social problems in a way that was incomprehensible to a Frenchman who, 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 when they have a problem with their plumbing in Marseille, calls the Minister of the Interior in Paris to fix the problem. I mean, he actually used that particular type of example to illustrate his point. So it's not a question of whether disputing that people need some minimal level of economic um, security. And that can differ. That level of economic security is going to differ in terms of its significance and amount depending upon what stage of life you're in. That's not the argument. The argument is how you, how you do that. And you should be very careful about using the state to do that. And here I'll switch to Michael Novak because people like Michael Novak had seen in the late 1960s, as did people like Senator Daniel Moynihan, what happened when you started to use the state and particularly some of the great society programs of Lyndon Johnson to try and provide not just economic security, but health security, employment security, et cetera, et cetera. What happened? Some of the unintended consequences. And Novak was one of the first people who pointed out in the late 1960s, early 1970s, as did at the time quite a few people in the Democratic Party, some of the very, co- the very high costs of using the state to try and realize these admirable goals. Novak used to say, some of you probably heard him say this several times, that if you want to achieve some degree of economic security in life, he said, finish high school, get a job, and get married. He'd say that over and over again. And the evidence bore him out. And none of those three things have much to do with the state per se. Uh, it's also a question of your sort of your time horizon. Markets get people out of poverty and generally keep them out of poverty, provided certain conditions are in place over long periods of time. The state can do that for a short period of time, but it can't do it indefinitely. If you try and do it indefinitely via the state, you end up with all sorts of social dysfunctionalities that undermine the very security that people are seeking to realise. What would you say to people believing in socialism, especially in today's world, that are afraid of the people. Uh, Coming from Mississippi, I actually have a priest that has told me before, uh, you know, I'm afraid of what the people will do. So we trust big government more. What would you say to that? (laughs) I've had priests say to that to me as well. Good priests as well. There's not so good priests. Um, The concern is that uh, unless there is a minimal degree of security that is guaranteed more or less via the legal system rather than markets or whatever, that um, people simply won't stand for it, that you'll have people rioting in the streets, um, looting the rich, stealing property, etc., Well, uh, there's something to that. People do want 
this type of security, and they get very nervous when it seems to be disappearing in front of them, and that's when they often turn to the state to try and fix the problem. The question you have to ask is, well, how do societies get to a position whereby the people start to think and act that way? And that's, I would argue, usually because some of the basic conditions of the common good, things like rule of law, things like basic social stability, things like basic national security have disappeared or broken down or seem somehow to be slipping out of our hands. Uh, so the solution, so, so my point in mentioning that is that all those things tend to get broken down, things like rule of law, things like security of property, when the state gets too big and starts doing things that it should never have been doing in the first place. So to see the state as the bulwark against uh, the masses, if you've got into that position, then it's probably at least something to do with the fact that the state is already doing too many things that it should never have been doing in the first place, and that's worn away and corroded many of the institutions, many of the free associations that Tocqueville talked about or the civil society that Novak talked about, this sort of third sector, that traditionally have provided that type of security. Uh, I read recently, I'm sure some of you know the book, by Timothy Carney on why large parts of America have, are experiencing significant social disintegration, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out to have very little to do with the economy. Very little to do with the economy. It's much more to do with the breakdown of religion, the breakdown of church, the breakdown of these this habit of association that used to provide people with a type of security that, and security and assurance and the type of help state can't provide. State can't provide love. State can't provide uh, an alternative parent. So um, one can always say, look, if we don't have the state doing all these things, we're going to be faced with social anarchy. Well, if you had the state doing too many things, you'll either end up with social anarchy or the type of tyranny that will eventually provoke the people to do other things as well. So I think it's a type of, it's a type of false argument and I think it assumes many things about what provides security in society that the state doesn't really have too many answers to as a state. Michael. Candidates say things like, health care is a right. Mm. And when I hear that, I ask myself, number one, uh, well, then is food, shelter, and clothing a right? And when does, when does that discussion begin? Number two. It already has. Okay. All right. Maybe it has. And number two, then, um, why doesn't a journalist or even a political opponent from the other party call them on that and say, well, where is that right? What is the cost, et cetera? Who's going to force these doctors to give free health care, et cetera? Why is this just allowed to be said with no challenge? 
I think I have a few answers to that. One is uh, America is a society in which the language of rights is everywhere. Marianne Glennon wrote that book in the 1990s, Rights Talk. Some of you are probably familiar with that. And there's a tendency for uh, Americans, whatever their political persuasion, to read political claims through the language of rights. Where the rights come from, their philosophical grounding, there's, that's when you start to see more differences. I mean, I happen to think that rights are derived from natural law, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, others see rights as essentially political constructions of whatever the powerful or the majority happen to want at a particular point in time. But rights, my point is, have become a type of cudgel to get my way. It's my right to this so I circumvent all necessary discussion about what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. So that's the first thing. That's why I think it's hard in America to be able to respond to people making these claims because the language of rights has such a hold on the American political culture, which is not a bad thing, by the way. It's not a bad thing. The real issues start when you, when you start defining what rights are and then who has the prime responsibility for realizing some of these rights? Now, I think that you can talk about healthcare as a type of right, insofar as health is a sort of manifestation of life, and life is a good, and that we have a duty to other people to protect goods that are important to all of us. I won't take you too, too down the far path of natural law theory, I promise. But... The question then becomes who and what institution is best able to provide or realize, give concrete expression, political or even non-political expression to a particular form of right. And this is where I think things like the principle of subsidiarity are very important because things like the principle of subsidiarity tell us that you don't run to the state to fulfill any number of rights that people might have. We don't, we can talk about something like a right to food, okay, but who's in the best position to do that in a sustained way and over a long period of time? It's not the state. Generally, it's not. Maybe in wartime, maybe, but generally not. It's usually the private sector, the commercial sector that is much better at providing this. Even healthcare, I would argue, is generally speaking better provided by private sector than by the state. If you have any doubts about the validity of that statement, I'd ask challenge you to experience Britain's National Health Service or any number of Western European state-run health systems. And if once the, if you can say, all right, the state is going is going to realise this right to healthcare via direct state action and the state running more or less the entire medical system, okay, well, there's a cost to that. The cost to that is things like prices, things, the price system gets thrown out of whack because guess what? Food and health are not immune from the process of supply and demand. They're just not. It'd be nice if they were, but they're not. And we need the price system to help sort some of those things out. Um, so it's, it's, so the language of rights, there's a whole, that's one question. Then the question becomes who's best at doing some of these things? And I think that someone like Michael Novak would have said, well, generally speaking, most of these things are better provided by 
the public's private sector. We can have an argument about whether they're right or not, but who's in the best position to actualize this right over long periods of time? That's where you start to get into questions of prudence, but you also get into questions of asking serious serious, making serious inquiries into who, historically speaking, is better at doing this. It's not the National Health Service. It really isn't. Yes. Um, so in his uh, classic essay, Socialism, a, a uh, obituary for an idea, Irving Kristol points out that uh, socialism is actually one of two major sort of ways of organizing the economy and society that come out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, so he explicitly points that points out that socialism is actually derives from Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, I wonder, I'm just wondering if there's a way in which uh, the distinction, some of the distinctions that you're, you're making presuppose or, or kind of addressing a kind of a socialism that comes out of the sort of the atheistic scientific socialism of the 19th century and doesn't fully engage with the, the sort of Christian socialist tradition, uh, which goes back really to the church fathers in some way. They, they would have said, of course, you know, private property is legitimate, but it's a sort of a, a, a it's a, it's an, it's something that we do because of our fallen nature and so forth. The public private distinction also is something that comes about in the modern era, uh, with Hobbes and so forth. So I, I just wonder if, if some of these distinctions are being elided a little bit or if you could address that. Yeah, sure. Interestingly enough, in the spirit of democratic socialism, Novak spends a lot of time talking about explicitly Christian versions or our exponents of socialism. Uh, he refers to um, Jewish exponents of more or less socialism, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, of communal ways of organizing property, etc. He acknowledges that many of these ideas seem to have some sort of biblical warrant. He, he points, for example, to uh, for those who are Christian will know that in the Acts of the Apostles, the first Jerusalem community, what does it do? It lives in common, they share all their goods, etc., etc. So you can find warrant for those sorts of things. What's interesting, however, is that Novak, and I would argue as well, that would say that the antecedents of those sorts of things are far weaker in Judaism and Christianity than you find basic support for important features of what we would describe as institutional prerequisites for market economies. Private property, thou shalt not steal. It's one of the moral absolutes. That's, so it's pretty serious. Right? Christianity has these very strong moral absolutes that we find particularly in the second tablet of the Decalogue from the Jewish people, which are moral absolutes, so shall not steal. So that's, you know, so... so um, collectivizing things in the name of community or Christian faith or whatever, that's problematic. Also things like, if you look at, for example, we just I just talked about the Acts of the Apostles. If you look at things like the experience of the early Christian communities, it's true that the Jerusalem community lived in common, shared, etc., etc., but guess what? The rest of the Christian world didn't. It didn't. There's no pause not going around saying, hey, we all have to live in little communes and pretend we're living out a proto-Benedict option. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't say that at all. All he says is that you have to be charitable and I want you to give money 
so that the Jerusalem community can be supported. Because guess what? It can't support itself anymore. Why is that? Because they don't, they pray, they et cetera, et cetera, but they're, they don't own anything anymore. So, um, yes, you can certainly find antecedents for socialist-like ideas, collectivist proposals, uh, but I think they're actually a lot weaker than the antecedents for the other side. The other thing, of course, is that the, the, the living in common, sharing goods, etc. Christianity, neither Christianity or Judaism have a problem with that. The question is you choose freely to do it. There's no compulsion to live this way. And in fact, most people are not called to live in monasteries or convents. Most of us are not called to do that. I couldn't do it. I know I couldn't do it. Um, but most of us are not called to live that type of way. It's one way of living out in a Christian context a radical evangelical idea, but it's not the only way. And I think the tendency for some proponents of some Christian, some religious proponents of socialism is to take some of those examples and universalize them. And I don't think either scripture or the church fathers or natural law really leads you in any of those particular directions. So, But it's interesting because there were plenty of people in the 1980s and 1970s, who Christians, who were arguing for this sort of thing. In fact, um, Michael used to tell the story that maybe some of you have heard this. When he first articulated, he, he came out as capitalist. It was at Notre Dame in 1976 or something like that. And he gave a presentation which he talked about what he thought was uh, a Christian case for markets, etc., etc. No one talked to him afterwards. They refused to talk to him. So that tells you just how far a lot of that thinking had made its way into communities of faith in the United States at a place like Notre Dame in the 1970s, which, I mean, I used to say to Michael, you must have been very brave to say these sorts of things at that particular time because there were people articulating the types of ideas that you just um, sketched out as something that some Christians have art- articulated and advocated for. Yes. You've mentioned a couple times that uh, great economists throughout history recognize that there is an economic case but without a sense of morality and virtue that that seems to break down. So the first part of my question is, can America uh, be perpetuated in the way that we all want to if we continue to slide down uh, away from that virtuous tradition that comes from the Judeo-Christian tradition? So if you could address that. And, And secondly, if we can't, how can we begin the process um is there an is there a secular answer to that question that doesn't ultimately lead back to a re-Christianizing mm-hmm. of the country? Thanks right. so much. That's a good question. Um, I don't say that often. That's a good question because it's something I've thought about as well. Um, even someone like Adam Smith, who's not a Christian, is pretty much a providential deist is the best way to describe him. Not hostile, but... Not clearly not a Christian if you read him carefully. Um, clearly believed that the type of political economy that's outlined in his Wealth of Nations presupposes that the human beings pursuing their self-interest in the conditions of the marketplace 
are not just pleasure-maximizing, utility-hungry machines. That type of interpretation starts to come in with people like Bentham. I would argue, in this, in, in, a, in a romanticization of some of that, starts to come in with people like John Stuart Mill. But for someone like Smith, no, he clearly does believe that you need a particular type of framework. In his case, it's a combination of um, stoic, stoic virtues, commercial virtues, and in, and in book six of the Theory of Moral Sentiments, he, he does talk about Christian virtues. Benevolence is what he refers to. So. Smith clearly believed that, although he's, he's of course living in the conditions of an intensely Christian society of Presbyterian Scotland at the time, uh, that, that you need some sort of non-economic framework and he's drawing upon a range of classical, modern and religious sources. So he clearly believes that. That's, I think, sort of where we are now, today, at least in many, at least in the United States. We have a, still in the United States a strong reservoir of influence from Judaism and Christianity. But there's a lot of people who are not. Um, but they will often ground their vision of the world in something like what we saw emerge during the American Enlightenment and during the American Revolution. They look to people like Washington and others who embody, gain this sort of variety of different types of virtues from different sources. Uh, And then there are people who, there are some people who basically appeal to just naked ethical hedonism for what they think a market order needs to be grounded upon. I think that's less of an alternative because I don't think it works. I think it ends up eating itself. And uh, if you go down the path of materialism, well, then you're not that far removed from the way that socialists, a true socialist, thinks about the world. Remember, Tocqueville said the big problem with socialism is it's fundamentally materialistic, which is very contrary to the Christian, Christian and Jewish position, right? It's fundamentally materialistic because it elevates the material above everything. So if we're going to see some sort of um, um, uh, remoralization of the case for the market, I don't think that we're in a position in America today whereby one can solely root this in Jewish and Christian tradition. And I'm not sure we'd want to do that in any case either. Certainly those are very important sources, maybe even primary sources for a country like the United States, but I'm not sure they should be the only sources. I think it's a combination of different ethical traditions, the Anglo-American tradition of ordered liberty, natural law thinking, Christianity, Judaism, etc. I think that's how you would start to cobble things together in a way that's likely to get some sort of consensus uh, in a way that I don't think just relying on any one of those particular things would necessarily do. Yes. Can you walk us through Novak's view and your own view of how to distinguish um, the concept of social justice, uh-huh. Hayek, etc. Right. For those of you who don't know, Michael Novak wrote a great deal about social justice, the idea of social justice um, in the 1990s and even into the 2000s. 
And he did so by engaging in a, dia a dialogue with someone who was by then dead, Friedrich Hayek, uh, who, of course, was famous for saying that social justice has no meaning. Uh, Hayek said that he had gone through all the different renderings of this idea of social justice, and he thought it was it really had no meaning. That was Hayek's conclusion. And yet, Novak pointed out, um, it wasn't that Hayek was somehow uh, opposed to getting people out of poverty or anything like that or opposed to helping people who were in some sort of distress that couldn't be fixed by economics. Hayek's position was that the state is not particularly good at doing some of these things. So Novak saw parallels there with the way that the Catholic principle, which you can also find in um, particular Protestant thinkers as well as natural law thought, the principle of subsidiarity was a way in which you could bring this concern about using the state to try and realize social justice, whatever that means, um, instead using institutions of civil society to take care of this. So that's so Novak would say that insofar as social justice, and I think the classic way of understanding social justice is it's basically a synonym for the common good, or the common good is the conditions that need to exist in society if people are going to be free to flourish, and that's important because you can't force people to flourish. They have to make choices. They have to exercise their free will. They have to use their reason if they're going to flourish. Um, so Novak would point to the principle of subsidiarity as the way that you best realize these types of conditions that make up the common good, which is... Um, which is the way that the Christian tradition has, has understood the content of what social justice is. In fact, if you go back and you read, and Novak was very aware of this, some of the 19th century Italian Jesuits who wrote on this theme of uh, social justice, um, you find there very similar interpretations of what social justice means, and it's not equality, it's not equality, it's not um, equalization of conditions. It's not what many of us grew up being told it was. It's something quite different. And people like Luigi Taparelli, SJ, wrote extensively on this particular subject. And they drew very much on people like Thomas Aquinas and then tried to locate this idea of social justice in a way that would fit within the conditions of emerging market orders and commercial societies that we found in Europe in the 19th century. So my view would be rather similar, I think. One more question? One more. Yeah, um, I take your point regarding the issue of recency. Uh, most young people nowadays have a favorable view of socialism simply because they only have the Great Recession to remember and weren't around during the 80s. Um, now, I'd like to engage with these people and ask your help how to do so because welcome oh, to the party yes they could say they could say that okay um free markets promise wealth and deliver on that promise but not justice understood okay. as equity i've already lost my house justice is the only thing i can look forward to right yeah. yes what what you find i when one is engaging uh with people who are attracted to what 
this word socialism and what they think is associated with it and the values that they often read into it. Um, they're not acting out of bad will. And they are scarred in many cases by the experience of the Great Recession. As I said in my presentation, we can't underestimate just how much damage that did to the case for markets. Even though I think a lot of it was frankly caused by bad government policy, it doesn't matter. That, that rhetorically, that argument has been lost. So typically what I, the way I try to engage with people who ask me questions like that and, and assuming they're of goodwill, I will say things like, well, have you heard the, of the idea of solidarity? I say, well, that's socialism. No, it's not. It's not socialism at all. Solidarity is a, is a phrase that has been used by, particularly since the 19th century, uh, by people of faith as a way of expressing what is simply the commandment to love your neighbor. That's all solidarity is. It's just the commandment to love your neighbor and to act at that out in very immediate and practical ways. It's not a command to turn over your responsibility to your neighbor to the state because I think that's the leap that people make. We have to cons be concerned for others. Well, I don't know many people would dispute that. But, and the state is the first point of call for doing that. And I, th I think to challenge them and say, is, it, is that really a good idea, though? I mean, we just have to look at not just 30 years ago, but even more recent history about the way that the state does so much damage, particularly to marginalized communities, in the name of justice, social justice, whatever you want to call it. So um, it's not a question of saying, no, we, have, we, we don't have to be concerned about our neighbor. Let's just let the impersonal forces of the market fix all these problems. Because they're actually, I find the argument is not so much with the wealth-generating capacities of the market. I don't find them saying that because that's really hard to dispute. It's really hard to dispute that since the um, expansion of markets and the opening of markets in the, in, around the world, particularly since the 1970s, has radically reduced poverty. The evidence is overwhelming, but that's not their argument. It's more a concern for justice and for caring for our neighbour and dealing with the clear problems that we see around us. So I encourage them to think about this in terms of solidarity, in terms of living out your vocation to your neighbor, and that's usually done by doing whatever it is you're called to do in life. Not all of us are called to be social workers. Not all of us are called to go and work as welfare bureaucrats, etc. That's not what we're called to do. Um, and to say to them, you know, it's not to say that politics is unimportant. Politics is very important in this regard. But what are you doing in your community to help? What is your church doing? What is your synagogue doing to help the addict or the person who is suffering from mental illness? And these problems in many cases have nothing to do with the economy. They have much more to do with the breakdown of basic social functions that once used to exist and which in many cases we've let the state try and assume the performance of those roles. So what I find when you talk to younger people like that, um, they are more receptive 
and simply saying, don't worry, the invisible hand will deal with this. I think we're done. Thank you. Thank you for all being here, and thank you to Dr. Greg as well for your amazing insight.